Hi, I'm Claire Mitchell, QC. Welcome to the Witches of Scotland podcast. I'm a lawyer who specialises in miscarriage of justice cases, and we're bringing you this podcast because we want to tell you about the women who were accused, prosecuted, convicted, and ultimately executed as witches in Scotland. I'm Zoe Vendatotsi, and I'm a writer who's always had an interest in the witches, and I feel that this dark mark against Scotland needs a reckoning. The campaign Witches of Scotland wants three things. Firstly, a pardon for all those convicted of witchcraft. Secondly, an apology for all those who were accused as witches. And finally, a national monument in recognition of all those who are affected by this terrible miscarriage of justice. Over the forthcoming weeks, we'll be talking to a whole host of experts about the history and the modern day connections to the Witches of Scotland. Hello and welcome to the Witches of Scotland podcast. This week we are in episode 52, which is, I'm just going to say it again, remarkable. That's as many weeks as there is in a year. If you chose to listen to one of our recordings every uh-huh. week we'll see you through an entire mm-hmm. year i mean at what point do we say enough is enough <laughs> when we run out of guests it's amazing there are so many experts that have covered all the aspects that we could possibly think of to do witchcraft and we've got a huge list of people still to interview Absolutely. so i think this could just keep going forever and ever frankly yeah well i hope for both of our sanity that there is a natural end to this story. Yes, yes. At some stage, hopefully there will be. But not now. No. But it's still keeping up the level of interest, though. The level of interest is growing. I mean, the number of people, dear podcast listeners, is growing. So please tell your pals, your neighbours, anyone, that we are, uh, what are we? We're an interesting... Yeah, We're, we're certainly... We're certainly here. We're here. We're, we're a podcast. We're here. Deal with it. That's, yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to talk about the quality. The quality of the guests is very good. I but mean, our chat beforehand, fine. slightly less. That's less quality. Less quality. Slightly less uh, marvellous. No, not really. No. Maybe Sorry. we should get David to cut that out. Sorry. We should big ourselves up. Sorry. That was David just saying, can you just stop this and get to the bit where you ask me about the news? Exactly. The news, you say, Claire. The news. What do you mean by the news? Do you mean what is happening this week in the news with relevance to which adjacent issues? That's exactly what I meant. I'm not even going to try and repeat that. (laughs) (laughs) What's been happening in the news, Claire? Lots has been happening in the news, Zoe. But I think you know what's been happening in the news. Oh, yes, I do. I do know what's been happening in the news. And it's a strange story, but maybe not entirely surprising. Surprising that it's still happening. And I I can't believe I'm actually about to tell you this. There is a pastor in Tennessee, in America, who has very recently burned a whole bunch of books that he thinks are demonic. So there's a pastor called Greg Locke, who is described as being controversial, I'll say. He's been burning these books because he's trying to fight, quote, demonic influences and I think this is really it's not funny at all it's obviously totally not funny and this guy is a pro-Trump conspiracy theorist so which tells you probably everything you really need to know but he said we will be in our continued series on deliverance from demons we have stuff coming in from all over that we will be burning we're not playing games witchcraft and accursed things must go and so he then said in a sermon that was before it, that he was fighting the, quote, Freemason devils and that, quote, I ain't going to be suiciding myself no time soon. I ain't messing with witches no more. I ain't messing with witchcraft. I ain't messing with demons. I'll call all of them out in the name of Jesus Christ, which he did in front of an audience. And then in it, this is the part that I think is hilarious. He thinks that all these books are really terrible. He thinks that they're under attack from demons. He then live streamed the burning of the books on Facebook, right? Now, I'm just going to make a point here. If you're burning books that you think are dangerous for children, do you not understand that if they have access to the internet, they can read and look at anything at all, anything, anything at all, and you have no control over that? It's just really bizarre. And also the psychology of saying, oh, we're going to burn books. They're so bad. They're so dangerous. We're going to burn them. I mean, I can't think of anything that's more likely to get children reading books. 
I would hope so. I hope that children in that area are now passing around copies of banned books that they've become like a no joke intended hot topic that they want to pass around. So there are pictures there apparently of the different books that have been burned, including Fahrenheit 451, which is just bizarre. And the origin of the species. I just think it's really bizarre. And also Harry Potter and Twilight. You know, if I was to read Twilight, I'm sure I would immediately seek how to become a vampire. It's just really, really strange. I mean, obviously it is serious because it really speaks to a really intense fear of freedom of expression and a really intense fear of uh, what would be thought of as being liberal kind of ideas. There is an ongoing issue at the moment in America, and I don't know if this is in other countries or just particularly an American thing, but the American Library Association, the ALA, said that there's been what's described as an unprecedented rise in requests for book bans. So at moment, 330 books are being challenged as objectionable. That was in the autumn of 2021. And a year before, it was 156 books, which is still, to my mind, 156 books too many. And there's one particular woman called Deborah Caldwell Stone, who said that in her 20 years with the ALA, I can't recall a time when we had multiple challenges coming in on a daily basis. And she's the director of the American Library Association's Office for Intellectual Freedom. It's bizarre. I don't understand. I don't understand how anybody that knows anything about adolescents would think that by saying to them, you can't do this thing, that it's not going to make them want to really, really do this thing. It's bizarre. I just think it's stupid. It's also incredibly worrying that we're being told again that the devil and demonic forces is amongst us because that only goes in one direction and the direction it goes in is eventually blaming people for being in cahoots with the devil and we find ourselves once again with witchcraft trials. I mean, you know, jokes aside, it highlights why it's so important that we do the campaign. You know, it it highlights why we need to keep talking about the fact that you can't blame humans for when you have misfortune in some way. You can't superimpose this religious supernatural idea on society in large and try and find somebody to pin the blame on. It's a really, really dangerous route to go down. And in fact, This week, I watched the film I Am Not a Witch, which came out several years ago, but was a pick for one of the artists that's got a show on at the DCA in Dundee. So the Dundee Contemporary Arts has got a cinema as part of the building there. And occasionally they have the artists that have got stuff on in the galleries. They choose, you know, films that they think people should watch. So I went along and saw I Am Not a Witch. And it was, it's an amazing film, actually. It's meant to be, it's a satire partly on tourism and part of the idea is that there's this bunch of witches and again that's in inverted commas who live in a witch camp and people pay it seems from the film to go along and view the witches as if they're in a zoo you know it's it's really bizarre but a really great film and it's a little girl an eight-year-old girl who's just sort of turned up in the village who's accused of being a witch and ends up touring with this government official picking out who's guilty in crimes So she acts like the judge and the rest of the witches in the camp are old ladies and they all have this ribbon that they're attached to that's on a big spool because the theory is that the witches can fly as far as the UK. So they have to be tethered to these ribbons to stop them from going and doing their witch business. On the one hand, it's kind of funny, like the idea of that is kind of funny and there is like definitely sort of like a deadpan humour that goes in the film. But on the other hand, it just made me think really very clearly about that wee girl that months and months ago we talked about with um, Leo Igwe, who runs Advocacy for Alleged Witches. And there was that wee girl that was accused in her primary school, I think she was maybe like six, seven, eight, of being a witch and was chucked out of that school. You know, there is a real issue with that. So if we are talking about in America where, you know, it's like the epitome of like the modern, the cutting edge of things, where they're literally burning books because this pastor says he's so scared about demonic forces. I would argue that I don't think he's scared of demonic forces at all, and this is how he makes his money. He makes his money by drawing in the crowds who are presumably all tithing or donating or whatever to him, and he probably lives in a McMansion. And if that's not true, I'm happy to discuss it with him on air. That would be very interesting. But I think that's just a money-making thing and it's a calculated, horrible, horrible thing. But I think what you're saying, Claire, is true. The natural progression from book burning is to blaming and then there's a human cost, I think. Yeah, it's really, really scary. I mean, picking up on what you said about I am a witch, I really, really am looking forward to going to see it. I hope I will be able to get to see it. 
but it's so sad that there actually are women and it is mostly women still alive these days living that life and oh. Leo Igwe has to deal with accusations of witchcraft that he has to go and try and persuade the authorities to intervene and to try and prosecute people who are causing alarm and fear and injury to people by calling them witches. So it's scary when a country which you would think would have a better view on freedom of speech would allow for books to be read as widely as possible and not for this sort of crazy spectacle. And I think you're right, Zoe. There's something about it that you do wonder whether or not it's just to bring in the crowds. 100%. You know, the fact he's live streaming it on Facebook, I mean, that to me is somebody that knows very well what they're doing to get clicks and to get sponsors or whatever and, and, and to get money from people that think they're buying into heaven. Yeah, it worked because yeah. here we are talking about it annoyingly. Yeah. Yeah, we're talking about it, but very much in a slagging him off sort of a way. I mean, you know, I've got absolutely no respect for that situation at all. I think it's pathetic. If you burn a book, I mean, come on. You might disagree with the content of the book, but let it be there so that other people can disagree with the content of the book. It's such a visceral thing, burning, you know, that we talk about on the podcast. is a real atavistic, a really base level, the burning of it, the getting rid of it, the, the erasing it. It's like, there's plenty more here, mate. I think he had the temerity as well of drawing a line, a parallel with himself, that it was like he was fighting the Nazism of demony people, demons, demon lovers, demon worshippers. And you're kind of like, dude, you realise that the Nazis burned books. That was like one of their their things that they did. Just like, I don't want to do a big swear here, but I'm thinking lots of swear words. Keep that rage contained, Zoe. Remember contained. I'm raining it in. I'm raining it in. Talking about this. Anyway, so that's the first piece of news. Claire, I believe you have something else on the news agenda. Yes, there's something else in the news agenda. Now, I don't know, those of us that follow on Twitter may already have seen that on International Women's Day, Laura Graham, who is trained as a lawyer and is an artist, she is having an event in Edinburgh. Now, Laura Graham, if those of you want to go back and remember, Laura Graham was in episode 40, and we spoke to her about her work involved in the witchcraft trials. So what she has decided to do is on International Women's Day this year, she has decided to have an event. Now, the event is very early in the morning. It's described as the reclaiming of Agnes' experience, and it's at 5.30 a.m. on March the 8th, that's International Women's Day, on Calton Hill in Edinburgh. And what she's doing Her project is called Exonerate Agnes and she is on Twitter and you can find her on Twitter at Exonerate Agnes, you can find her there and we are retweeting what they have tweeted so you can have a look at that and essentially the idea of it is and we're going to actually ask her to come on and speak about it in our next podcast but the idea is that On the days and weeks leading up to the 8th of March, Exonerate Agnes tweets out the allegations that were made against Agnes and what it was that she was accused of. So it's really good if you follow her on Twitter, you'll be able to see the allegations that have been made out against her. When we come to it, we thought it might be a good idea if we just gave you some background information in relation to Agnes as well. So she's the woman today that we're going to remember as a woman. I'm really quite excited about it, despite the fact that it's a very early start. But it's it's a really exciting thing because International Women's Day, you know, this year, that marks two years since we started the campaign. And it will be such an interesting, you know, to use the word visceral again, twice in one podcast, it will be absolutely fascinating to see the spectacle. And I think it'll be really moving that Laura's going to put this together. And, and I know that her work that we've discussed before in that other podcast that you mentioned is really incredibly moving. And again, it just makes the reality of what happened to these people just really present. And I, I think it's going to be a really amazing thing to go and see. So I'd really encourage people to engage with that. And if you are in Edinburgh or you feel like traveling to Edinburgh, it'd be really cool. And it'd be nice to meet you because of course, we're going to be there alongside Laura. So it would be really great to meet people if they're coming down to it. I should also say that we will try and get Laura on to have a word about it and to let us know about it. And if you yeah. go on to Eventbrite and look up 
Exonery Agnes, you should be able to get tickets for it as well. So give that a look and hopefully we'll speak to her soon about it too. But it's free, isn't it? It is yeah, free. It's a free event. It's just yeah. It's just um, to register, I think, for numbers particularly. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So Claire, can you tell us a bit about Agnes Sampson? Okay, well, Agnes Sampson was a woman who lived in Nether Keith. She was considered at the time to have healing powers, and it's said that she acted as a midwife. Now, she became involved in the witchcraft accusations at the time of James VI. James VI had returned from Copenhagen after marrying Anne of Denmark, as we've spoken about before, and he was quite fixated on the idea that the crossings had been so bad because the weather had been turned by witches in order to try and foil him in his return. So when these women were arrested, they were obviously tortured in terms of sleep deprivation and women confessed to having been guilty of raising storms that threatened the voyage. And there was all sorts of lurid stories that they sent devils to climb up the keel of the ship. The story of the arrest and the trial and the confession of Agnes Sampson, the reason that we know so much about it was that there was a printed pamphlet printed in London in 1591 called News from Scotland. And I would tell anyone that's interested to go and Google that. There's a Wikipedia page on it called News from Scotland. News is spelled N-E-W-E-S, News is from Scotland. And that provided some contemporary information and trial records so it's a really rich source of information. So Agnes Sampson was accused by Gillis Duncan and was arrested along with others. She was questioned regarding her role in the storm raising. She was put to torture, we believe that that torture was probably sleep deprivation and she confessed. A part of her body was shaved, we don't know if it was her head but it was said that she had a witch's mark on her and the proceedings took place in 1591. I'll not read out all the news from Scotland, but it's definitely worth going and reading the accusations that were made against her and what Agnes was said to have said. Effectively, she was said to have confessed to witchcraft. Now, one of the interesting things about the Exonery Agnes project is that what they're doing every day is that they are revealing part of the accusations that were made against Agnes. I'll not go through them in detail, obviously it's best if you follow on Twitter, because every day you'll see various accusations that were made. But I'll just pick one or two. For example, it was said that Agnes had foreknowledge that a man was a dead man. So obviously she'd refer to someone as being dead when it wouldn't have been commonly known that that person was dead. And it was said that that's why she was a witch. It was also said that Agnes worked as a folk healer, that she employed people, and there were accusations against her in relation to that healing. It was also said, for example, that Agnes was charged with healing a man. So it's said that she'd healed the person. It was by witchcraft, but we don't know any further details of that. But that was one of the things she was said to have done. So what happened as a result of that and as a result of her confessing to that was that she was in fact questioned by King James himself. He apparently and interestingly was sceptical of the material that she had given in her confession but it was said that she told him things about a conversation that he and Anne had had on their wedding night and that persuaded him that she indeed was a witch. So, on the 27th of January, 1591, the charges of witchcraft against her were drawn up into 53 different accusations, or what's called Articles of Ditty. She was convicted of those offences. She was taken to the scaffold in Castle Hill, where she was strangled and then burnt at the stake. So, we remember Agnes Sampson as a woman who was accused of things she couldn't possibly have done, who was convicted as a witch and paid the ultimate burden. We remember Agnes Sampson today as a woman, not a witch. That's sad. It's a sad story, but I think it will be really great to go along to the event on International Women's Day, the 8th of March in Edinburgh, 
that Laura Graham's putting together. I think that will be a really interesting way of going along and, and marking her in particular, but the witch hunts and the people that were caught up in it more broadly. Yeah, she's, I suppose, an every woman in terms of the witchcraft act. She could have been any one of the thousands of people that were accused, but it just so happens we have more information about her. Great. Okay, so today's episode of the podcast, we are really excited to be speaking to somebody who, again, we've met on Twitter and has posted some really interesting stuff that we think sort of broadens out the conversation generally about the witch hunts. So today we're going to be talking to Dr. Miranda Corcoran, who's a lecturer in 21st century literature at University College Cork. Her research interests include Cold War literature, genre fiction, popular fiction, sci-fi, horror and the gothic. Dr Corcoran has recently just released a book called Witchcraft and Adolescence in American Popular Culture. So without any further ado, we'd like to welcome Miranda to the podcast. Hi Miranda and welcome to our podcast. It's really great to have you here. We met, met's the wrong word, but on Twitter, and I saw what your research area was, and I thought, this woman sounds like she has got some interesting ideas that our podcast listeners would definitely love. So we're really, really glad that you agreed to come on. So thank you so much. Oh, thank you. And thank you so much for having me. This is really exciting, and I'm so happy to be a part of your podcast and your broader project as well. So it's very exciting. Thank you. That's brilliant. So if we could first of all start, do you mind just telling our listeners what your area is? Uh, so I work broadly in the area of horror, the gothic and popular culture. So I write a lot on horror, as I said, on science fiction texts. I do a lot on witchcraft in popular culture, which is obviously why I'm here. Um, I also do some teaching on witchcraft as well. I currently run a seminar in my department called Witchcraft in the American Popular Imagination. So while I'm interested in obviously witchcraft as a historical phenomenon and witchcraft sort of more broadly as a cultural phenomenon. My main interest is in how it manifests in in the media, in film, television and in popular fiction. That's so fascinating. I thought when we thought about bringing you on or asking you on, I thought about all the different representations of witches that I had to start off with and I don't know whether or not so you'd have been the same but my first witch in popular culture was Tabitha. Oh yeah, yeah, from Bewitched. Oh, I love Bewitched. <laughs> she was such a cool witch though. She was. she was she was like a really cool kind of benign positive cutesy sort of witch for the most part, wasn't she? She was. I'm always fascinated by her because when I was a kid, I was obsessed with Bewitched. Um, so that was probably a good indication of where my life would go. But they used to show repeats of it on on Channel 4, the, yeah. the British Channel 4, early in the mornings when I was a kid. And I was just amazed by it because Samantha wasn't some, you know, sorceress living in an enchanted castle in some fantasy world like in Disney. She was just an ordinary woman who had all of this power. And I was absolutely amazed by her. And I think as I got older, obviously, I think as with many people, I did find myself being a little bit troubled by some of the patriarchal connotations of the series in that obviously Samantha is this massively powerful woman, but she has to rein in her powers and sort of suppress her culture in order to keep her very boring husband, Darren, happy. But now that I've gotten a bit older again and have thought a bit more about it, I'm sometimes really impressed by some of the subversive elements of that show. And even though, you know, Samantha is forbidden to use her powers, she still does and she gets sometimes she gets away with it and sometimes she doesn't and she uses them in very subversive ways and her mother Endora as a very powerful matriarch so the show actually plays with gender in some really unexpected ways but I absolutely love Bewitched. Yeah Endora was in fact my favourite because she would always come in as the mother-in-law to go now come on here's how we should be using our powers and I loved her yeah and she was just so strong and so confident and men in the witch community in in Bewitched were almost non-existent they didn't have any real power they didn't have any real strength it was always the women who were powerful in that community which I think is a really interesting parallel to the middle-class suburban America that Samantha inhabits with Darren 
what's really interesting is each generation has its own witch icon, I suppose. And has that been going on for as long as we've had media? I think so. So my focus in my research is very much on witchcraft and adolescence, but I think witches as a whole are such malleable figures that they can be adapted in so many different ways. There's a great quote from um, from Margaret Adler in her book, uh, Drawing Down the Moon, where she researches neo-pagan witchcraft in America. And in that book, she says that the witch has the ability to roam between a myriad of different forms and roam she does. And I really like that because it sums up just how malleable the witch figure is. The witch as a archetype has so many different functions and can fulfill so many different roles. So obviously you have witchcraft in the sense of neo-pagan witchcraft as a religion. There's historical witchcraft as in the the history of the witch trials and witchcraft practices around the world. There are media witches where you can get witches who are good, witches who are evil, witches who are ambiguous. And because the archetype of the witch is so ancient and so all-encompassing, the witch as a figure can be put to any use. So it's really interesting to see how witches are adopted by different generations or by different groups for their own ends. And yeah, I think every generation does seem to have to have their own witch figures. I know when I was a teenager, it was probably Sabrina the Teenage Witch from the 90s sitcom or maybe Willow from Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And they were really interesting witches, but they were very much, for the most part, good witches. But I've noticed amongst my students... The witches that they really like are witches like the girls from American Horror Story Coven or Thomason from The Witch, who are much more ambiguous in their morality and in their behavior. So it's really interesting to see those shifts. That's really interesting. I wonder if that's because just absolute pop psychology here. I'm 46. So when I was growing up, definitely would be bewitched. Because I was thinking earlier that Bewitched ran alongside for me, I Dream of Genie. Now, she's not a witch in that, obviously, she's a genie. But there's very, very similar sort of an idea. It's just the idea of a magical woman in the home, which I think really, really formed me in different ways. And I know it probably if I was to research it, I wouldn't sort of so crassly put them together because they're not the same sort of thing. But the idea of a magical, having magical powers was quite interesting to me. And then I got into Sabrina. So that would be sort of towards my sort of middle to late teens that she was out. And I definitely was fond of that because she was so ordinary in many ways. She had the same sort of worries and concerns. And then I watched probably Practical Magic maybe after that. So that kind of a natural, romantic, slightly sexy move of witches at that point. They weren't like evil. They were absolutely like a kind of a good kind of benign, probably for the most part, sort of an idea. And maybe something as a teen girl, you'd gravitate towards that because you feel fairly powerless generally. So you have this kind of dream that if only I could, you know, do something magical. Does your research bear that out, that that's why teens are so drawn to witches? It does. I mean, so my research initially begins in the period just after the Second World War, where witch figures are mostly written and explored by adults. So I look, for example, at Marion L. Starkey's The Devil in Massachusetts, which is a study of the Salem witch trials and was one of the most influential studies of the Salem witch trials in the post-war period. It was published in 1949 and it was a huge influence on Arthur Miller's The Crucible. So I begin with those texts where you have adults engaging with the figure of the teen witch. And mostly what I argue is that adults engage with the figure of the teen witch in some ways as a means of figuring out exactly what this new cultural phenomenon of the teenage girl is and what she means and how she functions. But after that, once you get into the 50s and 60s, you get more books that are either written for teenage girls or books that are adopted by teenage girls. So I look, for example, at The Witch of Blackbird Pond, which was a popular young adult novel from the late 1950s. And I look at the early Sabrina comics and I very much explore how those works present their young witches as these points of identification for teenage girls, these sort of almost ideal figures. The main character in The Witch of Blackbird Pond, even though she's not actually a witch, it's a historical novel set in New England. She's an accused witch, but she's presented as this very brave, very strong, very idealistic figure. So she's very much an ideal projection of the self for teen girls. 
in the early Sabrina comics, obviously there's a lot of comedy in them, but Sabrina is primarily presented as this very glamorous figure whose powers allow her to have the latest fashions and the latest gadgets and they make her very popular. So they're very much presented as ideal figures and teenage girls can sort of map their own burgeoning identities onto these ideal figurations of teen girlhood that are sort of accentuated via their association with witchcraft, particularly in the case of Sabrina, where her powers allow her to, you know, live out this ideal consumer fantasy. But I also look at some texts, some witch figures that are a little bit more subversive and allow teenage girls to explore some of their darker fantasies and their darker feelings. So I look at Shirley Jackson's We Have Always Lived in the Castle, where the protagonist isn't really a witch in that she doesn't actually have magical powers, but she does engage in all of these strange rituals. She has a cat who basically acts like her familiar. So she is a witch figure, if not actually a magical witch. So I look at that and I look at Stephen King's Carrie as well, who, as I'm sure you, you know, she's not, again, a traditional witch, but throughout the novel, she's constantly aligned with the figure of the witch. And I look at how those characters who are quite murderous and quite violent and quite subversive, how they allow teenage girls to explore some of their darker impulses. So a lot of my, a lot of the work in my book does look at how the witch as a figure by virtue of her otherworldliness, by virtue of her sort of liminal status or by virtue of her magical abilities, how she's allowed to do things that ordinary teenage girls might not be able to. And it gives them a space to explore who they are, what their desires are, whether those are you know good or bad. I think that really sort of shores up the idea that we have, that we've encountered a lot during the campaign particularly, of people, lots of people, lots of women primarily, really identifying with the idea of the witch as being the subversive woman that's too powerful to exist or, yeah. you know, that this sort of idea, which I think is really, really interesting psychologically. Now, I am a huge consumer of pop culture. I've always been a big TV watcher. So I've got no issue with that whatsoever, like 100%. I love it. I love the sort of the fictional representations of witches and things are super interesting. But it concerns me that our cultural input with that and output with that mm-hmm. obscures then the historical facts Absolutely. of those accused of being witches you know that they're not they're not the same things and they can oh, exist yeah. quite happily together the historical truth and the representations as long as we understand that they're not that's not the same things yes you know. Absolutely. And that's something I've been very careful, especially in the introduction to my own book, to separate out the sort of cultural function of the witch from the actual individuals who were accused of witchcraft. I mean, even in the early modern period, when people were being accused and tortured and executed for witchcraft, the witch also served a sort of cultural purpose in terms of, you know, being used as a symbol or a concept in debates about religion or the role of women and so on. And this is something that, for example, Stuart Clark talks about in his book, Thinking with Demons. Uh, So witches have always had a sort of conceptual function as well as their sort of real world or the real world reality of witch trials and torture and executions and I have very much been trying to separate those things out in the introduction to my book. I think so many of our ideas as you said are very much obscured by cultural representations and the various cultural work people have done, various groups have done with the figure of the witch. So for example, second wave feminism made very heavy use of the figure of the witch from groups like the Women's International Terrorist Conspiracy from Hell. They were a radical feminist group in the US in the 1960s. So it's an acronym, which Women's International Terrorist Conspiracy from Hell. Why have we never heard of this? Oh, it's really interesting. Sorry, I was I was trying to keep them away from you. Uh, just- <laughs> yeah. They used to dress up as witches and they would do things like hex the New York Stock Exchange while dressed as witches or once they ran through like a bridal fair um, dressed as witches. And like they were a really interesting group and their performances were like disruptive and really fascinating. But there's also like a massive issue with how second wave feminism has treated the figure of the witch. You know, if you think of people like, you know, Ehrenrich and English, for example, or Mary Daly, people like that, who have this very sort of romanticized view of the witch and who essentially 
turn the witch trials and the European witch hunts and the North American witch hunts as well into a sort of, you know, gynocide and a sort of targeted attack on women. They've, you know, inflated the numbers of women executed for witchcraft into the millions, or they often describe women who are executed as being, you know, midwives and healers and these wise women. And a lot of these ideas are, are older. A lot of them come from people like Jules Michelet and Matilda Jocelyn Gage, but they've been really influential in terms of how we as a culture view witchcraft. And you still see that in the, you know, we are the granddaughters of the witches, you couldn't burn meme. It's like, it's really, really pervasive. And in a way, it is fascinating to me how our understanding of witches is so colored by the use that various political groups, various producers of literary and popular culture have made of them. And it seems like that almost functions as an intermediary or in some cases, almost like a roadblock that's kind of preventing us from, you know, exploring the actual and far more complex history yeah. of the witch trials. So I'm, I'm very clear in my own work that what I'm doing is I'm looking at the cultural representations of witchcraft and the cultural representations of the witch as opposed to the actual history. Because there's, there's enough material there to work with, you know, with the real life historical facts. There's no need for people to exaggerate it in any way. Exactly. As bad enough as it was. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And it's, you know, and also fascinating enough as yeah. it was, as well as a reflection of, you know, the power dynamics of the early modern period, gender roles. It's, you know, it's really interesting as it is, but People, I think, again, it kind of comes back to that point I was making earlier that the witch is so malleable and the archetype is so broad in some ways that people will make whatever use they can of the witch. And in some ways that's interesting. It's created some really fascinating works of art and some really fascinating pieces of literature and film. But on the other hand, sometimes it does result in some very inaccurate perceptions of witchcraft and the witch trials being sort of absorbed into popular culture and being described as reality when in fact they come out of quite often first and second wave feminism and their use of the witch as an archetype as opposed to you know actual historical women who were accused of a very specific crime. Mm. You're absolutely right about the block issue, because one of the things that we had when we started, I mean, we started an International Women's Day 2020 with the campaign. And one of the difficulties that we had was at the start getting people to understand what we were talking about, because people actually just they treated it as, as fun. I think we were getting phoned by journalists that wanted to do a, you know, a silly piece or yeah. uh, they, they're trying to pardon witches. And then when you actually spoke to people and said, what we're talking about is thousands of people that suffered the most brutal miscarriage of justice. In Scotland, it was a high percentage of women than it is elsewhere in Europe. It was 84% our experts tell us were women. And when we actually told them the story, they were really receptive to it. But there's, and it's not surprising, there are layer upon layer of cultural ideas that we have about witches, which make it okay to treat them as a joke. So when we're talking about the actual history of people, they're like, well, that's jokes. I mean, we had a good article in a, in a newspaper recently, really positive article about the campaign, about its what we wanted out of it, about why we wanted it, about the modern resonances with violence against women, about modern resonances with other people in the world who's still accused of witchcraft. And the article was brilliant, but the picture they put beside it was a woman with a green face and a pointy hat. Oh no. <laughs> just, you're just, it was obviously like someone just phoned the pictures desk and was like, we need a photo of a witch. Give us a witch. Yeah, oh. it's, it's, it's irritating, but it's not something that I would have thought greatly about before getting involved in this campaign. I have noticed little improvements, though. I've noticed more now when articles come out that they have witches generally in, in quotation marks. So they're getting the message that they weren't actually witches, which I think is really interesting. I'm not taking complete credit for that with the campaign, but I do feel like that's had something to do with that, that there is an understanding now that they weren't actually witches, which seems to be to be the most obvious thing that you could draw from the story. But a lot of people still struggle with it. You know, I sort of didn't get into an argument with somebody on Twitter. Obviously, that would be foolish. But I did say to somebody on Twitter that, you know, it doesn't matter what else they were. You know, they might have been murderers. They might have been, you know, 
robbers, you know, they could have killed their children, whatever. If it was for witchcraft that they would accuse and executed, that's not factual. That's, you know, so exactly. there's no point in obscuring it by going, well, some of them were criminals. So what? Like that, that's not the point that we're making. Yeah. They still you know? weren't witches. Yeah. Exactly. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I do remember a couple of years ago bef- before the pandemic, I went to Salem, uh, which was kind of uh, the fulfillment of a, of a childhood dream for me because I've been obsessed with Salem ever since I was I was very young. But I do remember I took a, a very good, like very historically rigorous guided walking tour. And someone did ask at the end, you know, were they actually witches? So I think that that idea is still pervasive. And I think sometimes I think it kind of comes from two places in the sense that there is an element of ignorance, but then again, there is also the massive cultural impact of, again, second wave feminism um, and the use they've made of witchcraft and the way they did frame accused witches as healers, as well as kind of works like, you know, obviously you have Margaret Murray's work and the, the whole idea of the witch cult. And a lot of that I think has seeped into popular culture as well. So that sometimes people do assume that even if, you know, people accused of witchcraft in the early modern period, even if they weren't flying around on broomsticks and even if they weren't green faced cackling hags, maybe they were part of one of these, you know, pre-Christian witch cults. So I think it's, it's just fascinating how all of these ideas have sort of percolated within the culture and it leads so many people to still view individuals accused of witchcraft as witches of some degree, even though obviously they weren't. This very week, we've had news that a pastor in America, who's described mm-hmm. as a far-right pastor called Greg Locke, has been suggesting, has not only been suggesting, but has held a book-burning event to burn evil garbage like young adult fantasy books, including books on witchcraft, like Harry Potter and stuff like that. That seems to me to be the oddest thing that you can possibly do to draw attention to this as some kind of realistic magic. It seems really, really weird. Yeah, absolutely. Especially since so many of those books are like high fantasy as well. I mean, they're not even they're not even grounded in reality. It seems even in some ways more extreme than, you know, the the satanic panic of the 1980s and the early 90s when people were concerned that teenagers were engaging in witchcraft and Satanism. That that seemed at least somewhat more grounded. Oh, it was awful. And the, you know, the results of that, you know, led to so many people being imprisoned and having their lives ruined for, again, for nothing. But it seemed at least somewhat grounded, whereas the books that are being attacked in this context are high fantasy, very much otherworldly kind of books, which is, you know, strange in many ways. It just reminds me of the fact, now, I must have been reading an article about this. It mentioned something to do with zoophilia, but the idea of the obsession at the time and in the confessions of having sex with animals. I mm-hmm. presume that's that's what it is. And the whole idea that the that Satan was animalistic and, and so on. Like, it just always just makes me think that these pastors are just, they're having really big repressed sexual feelings and the whole burning is just because they just can't deal with those feelings and they can't name whatever it is that's going on inside their own minds. There's a real parallel between that and the way that confessions were extracted during the, the witch trials, the witch hunts in Scotland particularly, the subjugation of the women and of them being stripped and the whole sexual dynamic. I just always think with those pastors, dudes, just relax, explore your sexuality. It's okay. We support you. It's modern. It's cool. You don't need to burn young adult books. Also, I think it's very bizarre that they think that's going to make one iota of difference to what these young people sort of consume because they can get the internet. So what difference does it make? Because they could go on, they can log on to TikTok or Instagram or whatever and see far more than the printed page where they have to use their imagination. You know, I just think it's totally bizarre. It is. And it's clearly very symbolic as well. I mean, it's all about the show and the spectacle of burning something publicly. It's not about actually destroying the books or making sure that young people aren't accessing them. It's this it's this big show and this kind of reaffirmation of faith for the other adults. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And for the media as well. Yeah. Yeah. It's just. Is, is there any reason or thing that you have researched on as to why witches at the moment have had an absolute explosion in popular culture? You know, Instagram, TikTok, they're everywhere. And modern day witches, people identifying as witches, 
do you think that's as a result of the 50s and 60s and 70s that's why it's happening now I think some of it has to do with I mean firstly the internet and the kind of ease of access to knowledge about these things I know that a lot of scholars of witchcraft and scholars of teen witchcraft in particular talk about the emergence of the internet in the 1990s and the witchcraft related chat rooms and you know websites that helped a lot of young people connect and become interested in witchcraft and I know it's something that uh, Peg Aloy for example in the US writes extensively about so it is something you see in the 90s but I think it's becoming at least partially more pervasive because again of things like TikTok and Instagram and having access to these sorts of things and access to information about witchcraft. Last year, I had some students do an excellent project for me as part of my witchcraft seminar that was all about witchcraft on social media and how teenagers and young women use social media to connect, to share information about spells and rituals and Wiccan and neo-pagan beliefs. So I think a lot of it has to do with the increased accessibility of information. But I think that part of it also has to do with just the current political climate as well, and particularly the political climate during the Trump era and the Trump presidency. I do remember reading a lot of articles during those years about groups that had gotten together to hex Trump or hex Brett Kavanaugh or some other very misogynistic politician. So there was a great deal of visibility there. That radical feminist group that I mentioned, which the Women's yeah. National Terrorist Conspiracy from Hell, they reformed under the Trump presidency. So I think some of it was sort of based on that sort of second wave idea, that second wave feminist idea of the witch as a powerful woman and feminist icon or a victim of patriarchal violence. And I think a lot of women at that time, as things like reproductive rights were being eroded, sort of identified with that. Mm -hmm. The other thing I noticed, and I think it was kind of the thing that encouraged me to write my book, was the explosion of witches in popular culture as well during the 2010s. So the 2010s gave us things. I mean, obviously, there have always been witches and teen witches in popular culture, but the 2010s had a really high concentration of them. So it gave us things like The Witch, American Horror Story, Coven, uh, The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina, which was initially a comic and then a television series. So there was this real explosion of very morally ambiguous witches in the media, witches who weren't evil or heroic, but sort of more complex figures. And often these witches had to deal with things like agency, consent, sexual violence. And I think a lot of that ties into the Me Too movement as well. And these kind of questions about, again, about consent and about rape culture. And a lot of the teen witch texts from the 2010s are very much interested in young women who use witchcraft as a means to explore their own agency and make their own choices about their lives and their bodies. So I think a lot of it has to do with the political climate as well as, you know, obviously the internet and social media. That's utterly fascinating and something I hadn't really considered in that way before. Why do you think it is that it's a way for young women to test out their theories in the world or consider their position in the world? Why do you think that we have to do that in the context of a witch idea rather than just having ordinary icons? Is it about the witch that draws us to it? I mean, I think a lot of it has to do with how girls and women are framed or treated in the world in that women are, and especially young women and, you know, teenage girls are not allowed to explore their sexuality, are not allowed to explore their own agency or their own sort of darker desires or their own sort of more socially unacceptable, you know, socially unacceptable in air quotes, impulses. And I I think fantasy figures like the witch sort of give them a safe arena in which to explore some of their more complex feelings about themselves and about their bodies and about growing up and the kind of transformations inherent in that. And I think that because the witch is so often associated with a certain kind of set of key magical abilities, things like flight and transformation, things that often kind of center around the body and how it moves and how it kind of 
transforms from one state to the other. There are lots of parallels between the experience of puberty and growing up and the figure of the witch. So I think the witch is kind of useful in that sense. And also, of course, the witch is generally in fiction powerful. And I think that power is appealing to young women, especially in this kind of more ambiguous incarnation that we're seeing now in the 2010s, where they can use their power for good, or they can use their power for evil, or they can use their power to be selfish, which, again, is something that women often aren't allowed to be. Like, one thing that always strikes me in The Witch, and I've had loads of debates with people about the ending of the 2015 film, The Witch, whether it's empowering or whether she's just signed herself over to be, you know, the servant of the devil and serve another man. One thing I always point out, one thing that always interests me, is that the thing that makes her say, yes, I will sign your book, you know, yes, I will become a witch and serve you as, you know, the devil. The thing that makes her do that isn't really the fact that her entire family is dead or that she's on her own. It's the fact that the devil says to her, you know, wouldst thou like the taste of butter? Wouldst thou like pretty dresses to travel the world? And I know some of that comes from a real case of witchcraft possession in the 17th century, the case of Elizabeth Knapp. But the fact that she agrees to become a witch and serve the devil because he offers her nice things, I think it's really appealing. She's allowed to be selfish and to want things and desire things. And that's often something that we just don't let teenage girls do. I don't know if, if either of the two of you saw at the weekend on Twitter, someone had taken screenshots of all the T-shirts for young women in a high street store. And it was like yeah. optimistic, be joyful, happy. And it was just, it was constant direction. But be a good girl. You know, keep your chin up and serve the Lord. You know, it was a bit, it was, yeah. Like toxic positivity, I think, is is what they're calling it online now. And I think there is a lot of that, you know, for young women, that sense that you have to be optimistic. You have to smile. I know there's been a lot of online discourse about men telling young women to smile and that it's, it's almost become a meme, you know, that you'd be prettier if you smiled thing. But I think there is an expectation, especially for young women, to be polite and pleasant and yielding and accommodating. And I think some of these darker kind of 2010s witches, they allow girls to defy that and they can be violent and they can be messy and they can be dark and they can be selfish. And it's this conceptual space where they can play out those darker things that teenage girls aren't supposed to want or do. I think there definitely needs to be a dark and messy t-shirt. Totally buy that. Yeah, yeah, same. (laughs) It's much more accurate with the teen girl experience. It's not like a nice and pleasant situation to be a teen girl. I work in a secondary school. I've got a teen daughter and I remember vividly what it's like to be a teen. It's hideous. Oh yeah. I think sort of the battleground of being a teen explains partly why we gravitate towards the idea of having magical powers. You know, I hadn't thought about Carrie as being like a witch. You know, I hadn't, hadn't really made that connection, but actually that's really really perfect you know I really like that yeah it's it's in the book I don't think they really touch on it there's a bit in the film where her mother calls her a witch because of her powers but there's a lot of it in the book where Carrie there's a bit where Carrie's lying in bed and she fantasizes about being a witch and like riding through the town and souring milk and overturning butter churns and all of this stuff Mm -hmm. and again there's like a pleasure in that there's a pleasure in destruction and violence which again teenage girls aren't associated with you know teenage girls aren't supposed to be violent or dis- or um destructive they might be on the receiving end of those impulses but they're not supposed to be that and like you're right you could not pay me to be a teenager again it was awful and it was messy and I was insecure and like my body felt uncomfortable like you never feel right in your body as when you're a teenage girl Um, and I'm sure like there's definitely a parallel for boys as well but like certainly as a teenage girl your body just feels like this surface that's erupting and I think that's probably one of why there are so many horror films centered around teenage girls I mean obviously you have Carrie but even things like Jennifer's Body and Ginger Snaps there are all these films that associate adolescent girlhood with monstrosity and with transformation um, and with horror because in many ways it is really horrible. It's sort of adjacent to poltergeist stories too, the idea that that's teen girls and 
it's this excess of energy that you know that then sort of seeps out in other ways it's so fascinating it's really been great speaking to you you're just you're it's wonderful and we'll put links up to things that people can go and find your writing and you mentioned your book what's your book called so my book is called teen witches witchcraft and adolescence in american popular culture and it looks at everything from spiritualism and how that's connected to teenage girls because it was founded by the fox sisters who were teenage girls right up to things like american horror story and the witch i was listening to podcast about the foxes today well they were mentioned in one about the great psychic fraud one that i'm listening to at the moment and they were talking about that and i was just thinking about the idea of poltergeists and i'm a second year i'm a high school teacher i was talking to my kids today my third years who are like sort of 14 15 about fear we're doing macbeth so i was talking to them about when macbeth sort of loses the plot and imagines Banco's ghost. And we were talking about whether that's real and what your brain does when you're under stress. And I just think it's so fascinating. As a writer and an English teacher, I just think it's amazing that we can construct these stories that help to kind of get through those difficult patches. And I definitely think that the connection that many young girls feel with witch stories, with representations of fictional witches, just to be super, yeah. super clear about it, is really helpful, I think, in some ways. You know, it is. Learn to accommodate the burden of being a woman. It's actually really important, as you say, Zoe, not only to treat these things as differently, but to point out also we love witch stories. I mean, someone, oh, totally. someone said to me recently, oh, well, you can't ban, what's it called, Zoom on the Broom? No, Room on the Broom. Room on the Broom. <laughs> it, was, it was a child's book about... Yeah, a it's a great book. Oh, yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm definitely not into the business of banning or even burning books. Oh, no, never. But we just, all we want is restore these people to their proper place in history and make it clear that whatever ideas we have now and however we use the witch as a construct, it didn't actually apply to these people. I'm so glad we've managed to make it to the end without actually bursting into flames at the idea of we are the granddaughters of the witch. Oh yeah, that's a pet peeve of mine as well, um, just because... It's it's very simplistic and it ties into, I think, what is a very problematic romanticization of the witch trials and a distortion of the witch trials that you get. I say second wave feminism, but you see it in like Matilda Jocelyn Gage's work as well at the end of the 19th century. And it's very much a distortion of reality and a romanticization of something that was not only brutal and violent, but also really complicated. Like in mm. like there are parts of the world where the majority of like Scandinavia and Russia, for example, where the majority of accused witches were men. Like it's yeah. witch trials are such a complex phenomenon that it's very reductive to position witch as these heroic victims of patriarchal violence you know it's it's so simplistic one of the things that we've mentioned as well is well what what does that say for the women that were burned like are they lesser like to me it's in the same sort of ballpark Mm -hmm. as people that die of cancer like that they didn't fight hard enough that stupid idea that we've got about you're battling you know I just think it's just baloney I just think it's total nonsense and like we said before there's enough there's enough there to work with, you know, there's so much. And I hate the idea that it's romanticized where we have this idea that they were nubile redheads that were that were going, you know, get lost to the man and that's what happened. You know, it's, it just doesn't such an enormous disservice. Yeah. Um, Absolutely. To like yeah. the com- and also like the complex personalities of people who were accused of witchcraft. I mean, my interest is very much American pop culture so I you know I look a fair bit at Salem because it's had such an influence on American pop culture but like if you look at the variety of people accused of witchcraft in Salem you you have people including you know a former town minister a disgruntled beggar woman some teenage girls some children you know it was such a variety of people that to reduce them all to these you know adult quite sexualized and sexually liberated women who were, you know, maybe closely associated with nature and healing, like that reduces a really complex story to like one type of person. But Salem's just such a perfectly American setup. It's like it's already, it's been written as a script that you could have all these different actresses playing all the different parts. It's it's so fascinating, I think. What's particularly amazing is that the story of the witchcraft trials were people who absolutely had no agency. And that was 
part of the problem. That was part mm -hmm. of the problem. They were people without any agency. They were without any power. They were people who were easy to pick on and blame your ills on. And it's so funny how we now transform that in the 21st century to something which allows young people, women, to explore their lives and to gain power from it. It's such a reversal from what the actual story was. It just absolutely fascinates It me. is. And I guess it's just an example of how an idea can evolve over time as well. The idea that if in the early modern period, a witch was someone who was stripped of all agency and all opportunities to determine the course of their life by being imprisoned and being tortured uh, and maybe executed and that evolved over the course of like four or five centuries into someone who is basically the epitome of agency and strength and feminine power it's really fascinating to see that that evolution now just finally can we ask you and you don't have to agree with us we, we, we ask this often whether or not you think that our idea or campaign for the pardon the apology and the, the National Memorial for it, against it, neutral on it. I'm for it. It is something you see in Salem, by the way, like the descendants of Rebecca Nurse, who was an elderly woman executed for witchcraft during the Salem witch trials. They got a monument to her in the 19th century. Yeah. Yeah, um, that often hold that up as an example of better practice than scholars. You know, and also then obviously over the course of the 20th century, other witches were pardoned, some of them only very, very recently. And there is a very, you know, a very beautiful monument to those executed for witchcraft in the middle of Salem. So, I mean, I'm absolutely in favour of, of pardoning people who, you know, still, I guess, bear the stigma of being executed for a crime that like not only did they not commit but they couldn't possibly have committed exactly mm. well thank you so much we really really appreciate you coming to speak to us oh, thank you absolutely fascinating thank you thanks so much for having me So thanks for joining us for this week's episode. It's been fantastic. I love the discussion about cultural stories about witches. I think it's really fascinating. And I love the idea that they're such a big part of our culture. And I know we've mentioned this already in the chat with Miranda, but we're not wanting to ban witches generally. We just want to make sure the people that were accused of being witches are recognised as not being witches. And women aren't called witches as a derogatory term. If people identify and have reclaimed the term witch and are using that to describe themselves, that's all good, but not to be used as a term of abuse against women. Yeah, for sure, for sure. So I would say what we normally say every episode, which is please do get in touch with us on our social media. We love to chat to people. And, you know, as I've already mentioned, that's where we find a lot of our guests, because either it's people that are already using Twitter that are really interesting, or it's people that get in touch with us to say, hey, do you know about this person that's an expert on this particular facet? So thanks for getting in touch with people that do already, but please keep it coming. It's nice. So we can chat to you on Twitter. That's the best chatty one to do. We've also got a page on Facebook. It's not private or anything. It's just a page that you can like and then you get lots of information from us about anything that's coming up that's, you know, of interest. And then also there's Instagram, which is pretty popular. I'm going to keep mentioning the TikTok, even though we haven't really done We've done one TikTok. And one I TikTok. think, Zoe, we should do another TikTok on International Women's Day. The thing is, though, Claire, I'm not sure that the raccoons are going to be trained <laughs> for that time. I mean, they're showing promise, you know. They're, they're, taking, they're taking their time. Mm. But I think it'll be worth it ultimately. I'm yeah, I don't know. Skeptical of that because the last time we discussed things, it was in fact ravens. You said you were training. Oh no, I'm training ravens and raccoons. Oh, of course, you yeah. I've got both going on. I've got other animals too that I'm training. I can't talk about that though because that's um, governmental. But the, the raccoons and the ravens. I've got quite a serious work schedule with them. Yeah, yeah. The raccoons are not learning phrases, presumably, but the ravens are. The, what the raccoons do is the raccoons come up with the phrases and then type them out on miniature typewriters that I've commissioned. With their tiny little hands. I read them out to the ravens. The ravens then do the phrase. So that's how it works, Claire. I mean, it's pretty obvious. And the this is ridiculous. Like, I'm I'm sliding into this awful sort of mid midlife sort of senility where I'm actually living through these imaginary <laughs> troops of animals. Listen, it's fantastic to imagine that you have, you know, some ravens that you're 
teaching to smash the patriarchy with their tiny, tiny little raven beaks. There is the guy on Twitter who we follow, who is an expert on corvids, who I would like to get on the show. If I could just think of a good angle to tie in with witches, and it will come to me eventually, something will happen where I'll be like, ah, now we can ask him. <laughs> Let us know through Twitter if you'd be interested in just an episode on corvids with an expert. Ladies and gentlemen, do not encourage this type of behaviour. It's bad enough that oh, you can already on. see. So cool. They're she so cool. already lives in a world, an imaginary world of ravens and raccoons. Don't encourage it. I'm sorry. So just going back to being an adult again, I would just like to remind people as well that we've got merchandise and we've got the buy me a coffee thing that goes towards David, our poor, beleaguered, hardworking podcast engineer who obviously was only going to do six and was motivated initially by shame at how poor our initial episode was. And he's still here after 52 episodes. Yeah, I feel really, really bad. I just want to make it really clear that we don't have David chained up in a basement full of ravens and raccoons working away on different podcasts. He has got a tether. We let him out into the garden. <laughs> Only joking. <laughs> <laughs> Now David's been co-opted into my imagination. And the thing is that I've not even met David. You've not? No, no. He's heard a lot of your poor man. That poor, poor man. That's a shame. But anyway, we have got the merchandise that's available. So please do buy some of it for for David and his escape fund. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. Right. Okay. Is there anything else we need to say at this stage other than I'm really sorry and I'm just going to go and have a lie down now? There's nothing else we need to say except we look forward to speaking to you again in a couple of weeks and that will be our last podcast before International Women's Day. So- oh, hang on. There is one thing I want to say. Oh. Um, it's not a silly thing this time, it's serious. We've just done a whole bunch of really interesting interviews that are going to be going out in media sources that are international. We've spoken recently to, I think, two or three French outlets We've spoken to one that is an international news agency that's got something like 155 clients worldwide. So that might go with them. And also we've got an interview lined up next week, I think, with German press agency and an international magazine. And I don't think we can say anything about what we're doing today, but it's a cool thing that's coming up that when we are able to tell you about <laughs> it, you're going to be into it. That's the worst when people do that. But that was a that's a genuine one. I can't tell you about it. Instead of people on Twitter, they go, I've got the most exciting news, but I can't tell you what it is. Well, is it, you've got a cinnamon Danish for your tea tonight. God's <laughs> well, that totally would be exciting news. We've managed to get cake in there somehow, Zoe. Oh my God, all the tropes of a middle-aged woman, it's really sad. Can I right, just inform okay. you, Zoe, that the usual tropes of a middle-aged woman are not raccoons and ravens, just FYI? Well, it just depends on the circles you move in. <laughs> Bye! Bye! If you'd like to learn more about the Witches of Scotland, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Sign up for our mailing list at www.witchesofscotland.com to keep updated with the campaign. On that site, you'll be able to find how to link with us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram.